Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. We are hosting Alistair Hudson, the renowned curator, trailblazer of usefulness in art, and the forthcoming artistic and scientific chairman of ZKM, the Center for Art and Media in Karlsruhe. Alistair Hudson grabbed everybody's attention when, together with Adam Sutherland, they turned Grisdale Arts, an art institution in Northwest England, Lake District, into a hotspot of artistic discussion and production between 2004 and 2015. A directorship followed at the Middlesbrough Institute of Modern Art. There, he developed the idea of the useful museum, opening up questions on how the museum can be used otherwise, and simultaneously reflecting on a wide collection, as well as new commissions and projects. In collaboration with the artist Tanya Bruguera and the museums Vanabe Museum and the Queen's Museum, he got involved in the exhibition Museum of Arte Util, and later undertaking the role of co-directorship of the Association de Arte Util that resulted from this project. The project, as he will talk about, has become a repository of artistic activities that propose new uses for art, working on a one-to-one scale and embracing artistic thinking to respond to urgencies. In short, all things dear to a highly conversation so far. Meanwhile, on the institutional front, an even grander responsibility of being at the helm of Manchester Art Gallery and the University of Manchester's Whitworth Gallery was disrupted due to a controversy around the work of forensic architecture last year. This summer, news of Hudson's forthcoming appointment to ZKM was announced. ZKM is also a groundbreaking institution that has been directed by Peter Weibel for over 20 years and set in the intersection of art and technology. They've hosted many large-scale projects by the likes of Bruno Latour and many more figures. And in that sense, Hudson's appointment truly sounds like a new chapter. And as you'll hear in during our conversation, we get to also catch a little snippets and clues about the way things will evolve over there as well. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Alistair Hudson to Ahali Conversations. So first and foremost, welcome, Alistair. Great to have you. So I want to go a little bit chronological in our conversation with you, and I want to start from Grisdale. And I'm wondering what happened to your views on art over there. And looking back now, do you see a before and after kind of situation? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was definitely a transformative period. It was a long time. It was over 10 years that I was there. And... As we were developing the organization, it also changed as we went along. But I was already, because I'd worked, basically, I'd worked in a commercial gallery in London for close to seven years. And I'd worked for the British government art collection. And they, in a way, set in my mind what I knew I wanted art to be and what I didn't want art to be, or at least in my worldview. So the commercial world was great. And it was like one of the world's then 
top blue chip galleries showing all the great and the good of contemporary art. But it was really about producing luxury goods, essentially. It was about art for the 1% and so on. So it was an amazing learning curve, but it was very clear to me it didn't really fit with my rather more socialist worldview. Then I'd had four years doing public commissioning with the government art collection and worked with Liam Gillick on the home office building, a new building for the government department for home affairs, which was kind of an architectural commission, but about getting government and the workers in the institution to think differently, how you would use art in a way to change the environment in which decision-making takes place. And it was kind of with that that I started thinking more and more about this idea of the social application of art and how it could be used outside of the field or outside of the bubble, really, of where I was used to art inhabiting. And it was at that point I saw this opportunity at Grisdale, which was like totally out of the metropolitan context. And I'd been in London studying, working for years and years. And I was very conscious that London was one of the epicenters of a dominant canon and then a dominant history. And I was keen to step outside of that. Because I, even just working in like in a government political context, I'd realized that most people don't really care about art. They're not really that interested. It's really only art people, for the most part, that are interested in art. And here were these opportunities where you were working with art, but with people who didn't care about art. But it was trying to get it to work with those kind of different user groups or constituencies. So this was a chance working in a very rural, mountainous, touristy, complicated environment in the Lake District, which was born really as the world's first tourist destination out of the romantic condition of British industrialization really kind of creating this crucible of just everything that's very complicated in the world about land ownership and culture and politics and farming and environment and everything else that goes with it. And here, really, people had no understanding of what art was or what it was for. And certainly when I started with Adam in 2004, the idea was very much about breaking this romanticism, breaking the romantic paradigm of art and breaking the romantic misrepresentation of the rural environment, essentially, or of our British culture. So essentially, in the early years, it was about basically artists behaving badly in the countryside, putting up billboards that offended people, setting things on fire, heavy metal or funk concerts on farms, usual contrary stuff. And that evolved into a sort of actually quite an interesting conversation about how you paint the truth or the reality of living in a non-metropolitan environment. And actually, if you think about it, most of the world is non-metropolitan. Most of the world is rural or semi-rural or small towns. And so it was really about trying to get art to work in this context, which most of the world is like. And it drew out lots of interesting conversations and opposition as well, because people didn't want the fantasy of the countryside to be broken. But actually, all the local people said, no, this is really true. We all like heavy metal. We like setting things on fire. We like behaving badly. So it really started to pull together a, a way of working with artists that ask very serious and personal questions about the nature of culture and the nature of society. And a lot of these projects involved working with people. But in those days, it was what I call the era of participation. Back then in the noughties, local people participated in art projects designed by artists. And usually it was about 
in the end, that product feeding back into the art world and becoming art product for museums or cultural events. And we were complicit in that as well. And we did shows in New York and London and Switzerland and, and, and everywhere else. But there was a key moment, I think, after a particular festival that we organized when a local farmer said, when are you going to do something for us? We keep doing all these, taking part in these crazy art projects. When are you actually going to do something that works on our terms? And that was quite a switch, along with a lot of other conditions. And that's when we started to think, oh, yeah, maybe maybe we should. What, what if we tried? If we tried to be really rebellious by being helpful rather than being contrary or being provocative. And that really started this, I suppose, the trajectory of thinking about the use of art and how you apply art in the social conditions that are on the ground and help advance or do things differently that is actually works to what people are trying to achieve, what people are trying to strive for in those communities. So that was the key turn in that kind of story of Grisdale. So in a sense, it's not only a before and after, but it's the whole experience and in a way, epiphany of thinking about dislocatedness or the situatedness of what you are doing and how it also resonates and is used or not used by the people, the constituencies, or basically the people who are living there. Exactly. On the one hand, a lot of the projects were quite fun. They were quite humorous. They were quite provocative and so on. But they were also done with us as members of the community, working with other members of the community, not as us as art outsiders, in the end, doing stuff with communities. And that was a big difference. And it was about actually joining in with what they were doing rather than trying to get people to join in what the art people are doing. But actually, what it required was some very deep thinking about what art is, what culture is, and actually breaking a lot of the rules that are determined by the art world, and particularly by a market system and by a a system that is set by conditions in London, New York, Berlin, Beijing, more latterly. So yeah, it was about doing things differently. And, and also, I think in a place like that, you can get away with doing things differently. If you broke the rules in London, then people would pretty soon kick you out and, and, and disentangle you from the art world. Because it's, yeah, it's, no, it's not art, it's sociology. That was often the, the thing. Or it's not art, it's farming. Or it's not art, it's music. Or it's not art, it's something else. Whereas there, it didn't matter. It didn't matter what art was because we're just working artistically in usual life rather than trying to make an art project, which is a big difference. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the distinction. I mean, our very first episode was with Stephen Wright and he was speaking about this coefficient of art or coefficiency of, let's say, artistic activity seeping into everyday life. And is that how you met with Tanya Bruguera and start discussing this suggestion of art as a tool or working against, in a way, moving away from the purposelessness and kind of trying to look into other practices as well? Yeah, no, no, very much so. It was, I think it was really, it was a, a coming together of what I call fellow travelers. There were quite a few of us in the world at that point who were starting to try and find ways to find other paths out of the 200 years of modernity and because we got bored of it basically and seen seen the damage that it's had done and really connecting with people who were thinking or working different ways around this idea of reintroducing usership or use value within the realm of art which is essentially the key facet 
of art that has been extracted from art since the late 18th century, which I guess Stephen probably talked about quite a lot in terms of like the Kantian paradigm of art and entity and the market and, and capitalism and so on and so forth. So really, it was at that moment, it was actually a conference, and I can't remember the year off the top of my head, it was called Terminal Convention, that was organized in the disused airport in Cork in Ireland. And I went to speak about Grisdale, there was Charles Escher from the Vanna Museum, there was Stephen Wright, there was quite a bunch of people who were clearly, we didn't realize it, but we'd been manipulated by the organizers. To, to go along and speak at this conference and we all started going ah oh, hang on there's there's something in common here there's something forming here that we agree on and essentially it was really charles van abbey museum charles escher who was already starting to work on an idea of a show with tanya baguera initially a, a solo show but she'd also been developing this idea of arte util art as a tool which came out of her behavioral art as well or arte conductor and in that process of thinking what that would be, Charles said to Tanya, oh, you should go and see these guys in Grisdale in the Lake District. And uh, so that she basically, she was put on a plane from the Netherlands to Manchester and they had to get a taxi from Manchester airport in the dead of night and arrived at this farmhouse on top of a mountaintop in the freezing cold darkness at about midnight, swearing through the door and basically, where the fuck am I? Get me out of here. <laughs> here. I said, it's all right, calm down. We'll see you in the morning at breakfast. And I, I'd given her a paper of a proposition around a, an exhibition around the idea of use value in art. And she came down for breakfast the next morning, furious that I kind of <laughs> was treading on her territory and licked her ideas. And then actually it turned out to be a really productive conversation. And we got on really well and really started to connect on that front. And that really led to... I suppose this group of fellow travellers, including Alessandra, who's here at the at the table here, worked tirelessly on the archive and, uh, and the project years now to really build this idea of one, the exhibition, like the, the Museum of Arte Util at the Van Appen Museum in 2012-13. And then and this idea of the archive and the idea of a, not a movement as such, but a really a kind of network of people who were... Uh, really trying to save art from the capture system of what art had become in the West and to sort of liberate it back to what art has been for most of human history, which is a process that you apply to ordinary life processes to enhance them, to enrich them, to work for people rather than working towards capital. Yeah, so that's the potted story of Art Util, I'd say. I have several stubs that... Um thinking which one to take. One is definitely about the museum because the museum as an idea and as an institution was one of the key actors in turning art into becoming the way you mention it. And then how to think about a museum for such art that is not, or that is in a way resisting being museumified as well. Exactly. Yeah. And I suppose that's been my thing, if I have a thing. <laughs> It's, I think an artist want, Liam, it was actually, I'd worked with Liam Gillick on the Home Office project. He called me, he said, oh, you're Mr. Institution. Because <laughs> <laughs> you keep messing around with these institutions. And uh, yeah, but, but that, anyway, I think that's been my main area of interest is like, how do you apply these ideas that come from art practice to a museum? Because I, I was always really keen, because I kind of trained as an art historian and as an artist, I always wanted to do both. And I always thought that you should run art galleries and art museums as art projects. 
that they shouldn't become administrative. They shouldn't become boring, basically, which is a lot of what museums do. They just get bogged down in, in the day-to-day bureaucracy of how to run a museum and self-preservation rather than actually doing anything interesting. So I always wanted to run them like an art project. Every component of them should be as artistic as the content that they that they present or work with. So in that, I was also very keen that you should try and apply this thinking to the institution itself. Because in a way that the instinct of modernity would be to pull the museums down. And I was probably one of those people in the Grisdale years that would say, yeah, you don't need museums, you don't need art galleries, you should be out in the world doing projects, all that sort of stuff. But actually, some of the things that happened at Grisdale made me realize that somehow, actually, the, the politics and the power of an institution can be really helpful in transformation processes and social transformation and community cohesion. And so I did become more interested in the history of the institution, where it came from and what it became. And I became conscious that actually a lot of these places didn't start out, certainly in the British context, they didn't start out as museums, as spectator mechanisms. They started out as social and educational organizations. And so in in the UK, this is the history of the Mechanics Institute movement or various other social imperatives, social and education imperatives that came from the Industrial Revolution about transforming society. So I thought, well, maybe they, yeah, it's kind of like the wrong thing. Just to knock something down and start again is, is really the avant-garde model. That is sort of the white male masculine gesture is to smash it up, to be a naughty boy and then rebuild it in your own guise. So I thought actually it's better to think rather, and also that that's tied in with the history of autonomy and autonomous art. So in a way, what would be the ecological view, which is actually to repurpose to these buildings, to reimagine them, to evolve them, to turn them into something else. So it's like some of like our friends who we work with on the Making Use Project in, in Warsaw, they talked about bending the museum, which I quite liked as well. So it's like, yeah, don't smash it up and don't just like lay it to waste. Let's work with what we've got and reuse it. Because actually, for me, it's like, if we could imagine how we could use the museum or use the art gallery in different ways, that could be a better answer than trying to do grand gestures. And in a way, the thing about usership, you know, which also anticipates kind of emancipated user or someone who takes use as a creative act as well. And in that sense, the users are maybe not only the visitor's camp as the original duality, like the in-house and the outsiders kind of situation, but maybe the users of the institution are also the people who work there. But one thing about the figure of the artist, I mean, you are rightfully critical of the modernist construct of the artist as a kind of savior or a rebel or something like that. But when I think about the artistic position or practice, I also often go back to the figures of the shaman or with the witch as well. And I think they did not necessarily give people what they wanted, but they definitely had a strong social contract. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think because basically that modernity is so ingrained in us and this idea of something being art or not art is so ingrained in us, I think it's often quite hard for us to imagine another way or other approaches to doing art. And I think that applies to the artist as well. So if we go back to Stephen Wright and his coefficient, essentially what that means is don't think about whether something is art or not. Think about to what degree something is art or in what sense 
something is art. And you end up then with an ecology of all different positions. Of course, within that, you have like a high coefficient of art in someone like Picasso, but then a kind of a low coefficient of art in somebody like a gardener who might be just at home making a beautiful bed of roses and everything in between. And actually, for me, that's been this idea of the coefficient, both in terms of art and what the artist is, has been incredibly liberating. Because I've always have subscribed to that view that in one way or another, everybody is an artist, or everybody has the capacity to be an artist. It's not that there are chosen, there's a chosen few. And of course, there are people who are very bright and smart. There are people who are highly skilled because they've trained a long time or because they have a particular natural ability. But the reality is, is that art permeates all these different kind of economies, if you like, that makes up society. And in a way, it's more accurate to describe the world and describe the role of the artist as operating in and amongst all those different economies and societies. And that would include the shaman, and it would include the priest, and it would include the gardener, and even like badly behaved people. Like, like tyrants or dictators, they can be, as we know, they can be artists too. So for me, that's actually how the world works. And that's actually how art works. And we've seen in recent times as well with the, the hard right shift that they have used artistic strategies and competencies in terms of aesthetic literacy to get their way, which has sort of dumbfounded the left for many years as well, because they sort of had their tactics taken off them. And you kind of got people like Putin using very hard visual currency in order to, to, to enact power or someone like Trump using particular language and, and visuals in order to gain power and so on as well. And these are artistic competencies. So I think we do have to think very carefully about who artists are and be accurate about it. I read a lot of Ruskin, whatever you think of him or not, but his view of art was it ultimately Art is about how to see the world truthfully and importantly, then to act ethically in it. So you have to see the world truthfully for everything else to follow. So if we still have this idea that some people are artists and some people are not, or we still have this idea that some things are art and some things are not, then that's not a true understanding of how things operate. So this idea of the coefficient is really, really key to opening that up. In a, in, a, in a more interesting way. You mentioned Ruskin, and he also had a lot of interest on the planetary. He was, as far as I know, following the developments in geology very closely and these new knowledges. And today we know, in a way, much more about the planet. It's still not enough, obviously, but... And then we also created these technologies that already became part and parcel with us within the same ecology. And I think our models of cohabitation so far, or our concerns over like how we live together with others, with other peoples, other species, and with the whole planet is also, on the one hand, quite expanding and being challenged. On the other hand, also there's a reactionary, let's say much more conservative approach on it. But I'm curious, how do projects that highlight that usefulness and also that connect with communities include or tackle these issues? Or do you see a relationship between these modes of thinking? Yeah, no, absolutely. If you look at the Artutil archive, there are all kinds of different categories, for example, in the archive that are, there's ones that are to do with economy, ones that are to do with science and technology, ones that are to do with pedagogy. And of course, they all overlap and they all, they all interrelate. 
And essentially, it's understanding, again, it goes back to fundamentals in my mind around understanding humans and even like non-humans using tools. And art is one of those tools they use, even if it's as a process. And technology is an extension of that. The whole history of the language of technology comes from an understanding of art and a much more open-ended understanding of what art is and what technology is. And I can see that run through, you know, like throughout human history. And of course, it comes to extreme moments in the Industrial Revolution, which is one thing, and, and which in a way was the moment that gave birth to institutions like the Whitworth and Manchester Art Gallery, where Manchester was like the first modern city and all that. But it also applies now, I think, as part of that storyline with digital technologies and post-digital technologies as well. So that's what, in a way why, for me, ZKM is very interesting right now as a place which was kind of designed as a Bauhaus for the digital age, that it could, re- it could begin to reimagine itself, not just in terms of new media or media arts as a subset of the world of art, but understood its interrelationship between economies and societies and these emerging technologies as well. And then the important thing is, how do we make sure that these technologies are used in the right way for the benefit, for the widest possible benefit of humans and non-humans on the planet? And a lot of proposals or suggestions or prototypes of how you might do that are being modeled in artistic processes and artistic projects, some of which are articulated in the Artutorial Archive or we look at some of the really interesting stuff that's happening in Peru. Argentina, Mexico right now in terms of technology or in, or in sub-Saharan Africa or in Bangalore. You know, people are starting to use these technologies creatively in very interesting ways. And that for me is quite an exciting moment to be in. This was definitely going to be one of my questions. And also with the ZKM, I mean, maybe a parenthesis for the audience, you mentioned the director of an institution also having an artistic efficiency. And ZKM has been so strongly associated with Peter Weibel and kind of his approach to the dynamic relationship between art and technology. So I'm really curious about what your plans are or if they are starting to brew a little bit in your head and what I first glance understand to expect is also looking at the wider planet and also maybe moving away from the Eurocentric positioning of these discussions but is this a correct observation or do you have anything to add on that? Yeah yeah that's pretty close I'll be careful not to reveal too much because I haven't even told the team at ZKM yet what my plans are (laughs) so (laughs) They listen to this podcast, probably listen to this. No, but I think it's pretty clear. I mean, certainly I'm going to, I will be taking the philosophy of Arti Util and that whole project with me, but certainly beginning to look at it from this technological aspect in the ways that I just described before. But I also do think it's a chance to reimagine an institution in somewhere like Germany, and particularly one that's in the genealogy of the Bauhaus, to do that in a different way that's more generous. I suppose, in the current global context. So, for example, if you imagine that the Bauhaus, in a way, was, it was this idea that created a central point that then had this diaspora that went out into the world and infected the world with its ideas in very positive ways. But nonetheless, it was still very much something that came out of the middle of Europe. 
at that particular moment in history. And of course, was created by a moment of trauma as well and violence. But it kind of feels right now that that wouldn't be that kind of broadcast approach, if you like, wouldn't be one that was fitting or sensitive to global politics and society right now. So in a way, I'd much rather see ZKM as a contributor to a networked constellation of people working, if you like, fellow travelers. So they're basically people working together in this way. And it's the same as I talked about in Grisdale. Rather than everybody trying to join in what ZKM is doing, what would happen is ZKM joined joined in what everyone else is doing. And they brought their skills and competences to the table with programmers and AI specialists and everything else that, that comes to that too. I was also thinking and also maybe embracing the patchy and partialness of the planetary reality rather than being a universalist or you know imposing this universalism as Bauhaus used to do. Since you mentioned the Bauhaus, I'm curious what or how much you think about the concept or the notion or the activity of design, because that's also a byproduct of the industrial revolution and a detachment from basically what used to be called art before. And I mean, someone like Boris Groys would say all art originates as design and in a way design precedes art and the museum is the site for seeing defunctionalized design fragments. And since there is also, let's say, new emerging fields such as social design and other activities that really, I think, coincide to a great extent to what Arte Util philosophy embraces. So I'm curious if you think about design as a concept or what you think about it. Yeah, definitely. I would include design in my very broad planetary ecology of things that happen. As you say, the, the idea of design as we think about it is part of that mentalization of what art was. That Also, you could say the same about craft. You could say the same about architecture and many other things. And in reality, all these things are very interconnected and overlap. I'm of a mind to, be, to, to enjoy the complexity of all that rather than try and draw hard lines between things. So yeah, I, w- I would include definitely include design. And there's moments where art flips over into design and vice versa. And I think that's a rather joyous thing in my book. And especially when you see it happen in specific contexts as well, like you were intimating, like a universal idea of art is certainly not something that I would want to maintain. And I think that the conversation is now, and this is, I suppose, part of what I was trying to, trying to say with the how ZKM might operate, and in fact, how a lot of projects I've been involved in operate in this idea of the interlocal rather than international which is about specific places and specific circumstances having a global conversation with other specific circumstances and places where you're actually having a much more articulate conversation about how to get things done. And they will be different in different places and the people will be different. But through those conversations that now are enabled through technology like this, you can actually start to compare notes and share tactics between somewhere in the rainforest in in the Amazon or somewhere in Syria or somewhere in the highlands of Scotland. It doesn't really matter. But that is a very exciting thing I see happening right now is the way that artists and communities are able to pull together, even though they might be a thousand miles away. And, and I think that's, that is of great benefit. And I think that's something that's quite, I've seen particularly with the RTTL archives is the conversations that emerge between for example, 
um, Ibrahim Mahar project in Tamalay and kind of post-Zapatista technologists in Mexico City, that there are things they can learn from each other that can really start to have traction in the world. And, and, and you can make the changes happen from the cracks rather than from the centers. And I've always quite liked working on cracks rather than the centers, I have to say. And also this idea of the institution or working as a, not only a repository, but a kind of infrastructure almost or a support structure to enable those conversations, I have to say is quite exciting. So as my final question before we open up to comments and questions from the groups is tell me how much you want to get into it, but it comes as an obvious point because we discussed so much about employing new technologies and expanding knowledge around the built environment. And I think forensic architecture is a really interesting practice in the way they shed light on or scrutinize shrouded political conditions through also using this knowing how or through using their knowledge about the built environment and access to new technologies. And obviously there's been a controversy around their work during your time in Manchester. So I'm also curious if you want to air that out or however you feel like, but I I thought it kind of came naturally. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated story. It's probably worth another podcast in its own right. But I think essentially what I've always tried to do is to shift the museum or the art space or these architecture from representation into operation. This is what Artie Othiel essentially proposes as well. It's no longer about pointing at something, painting a picture of something, but actually doing it and getting involved in it and making, making stuff happen. And obviously forensic architecture is very kind of, it's like the poster child of that way of working, if you like. But a lot of the other projects I've been doing have also, the idea has been to operate in that way so that this is a place of doing rather than just representing. And of course, when things are as political and directly political as something like forensic architecture, of course it has an effect in the world. And as Eel Weissman said, he said, guess what? You do political art, it's political. And yeah, that's kind of what happened. So a lot of shit hit the fan and a lot of stuff blew up. And there was a lot of antagonism and discourse, to say the least, around that, around that particular project. So for me, this is an important way of working for cultural institutions, that the world is cultural. These places should be about making the kind of culture we want to live in. And if you are involved in that process of making culture, of educating, of creating the conditions for people to have a voice, of being a dynamic organization that is involved in things in the world, and not just a kind of neutral chamber or repository, then things are going to get messy. You're going to get your hands dirty. But I think, I don't think you can deny even museums in their most supposedly neutral form are of course not neutral. The British Museum, its use, <laughs> despite all its proposed neutrality, is, is one of the most political active organizations on the planet. So I think, we, again, it's about accepting reality, about the way these things work and understanding them or maybe misunderstanding them as well, because a lot of culture and society comes out of misunderstanding as much as it does about understanding. And um, unfortunately, it does get feisty at times, and sometimes it gets really unpleasant. But equally, other times, sometimes it's very beautiful. In fact, for mo- most of my five years here, this way of working has been very rewarding and very beautiful. If you kind of think about 
the Suzanne Lisi exhibition that we just did, where it was all about taking Suzanne's work and bringing it into the world and making it live again and making it active and operational in the context of Manchester, it had a huge effect on bringing people together and giving people voice and giving them agency and changing policy and, and making things happen in communities that, that they hadn't been able to find other ways to do through the usual political routes. And suddenly you have these communities who see the Whitworth or Manchester Art Gallery as places where they can, they, they can have a voice and have recourse to power on their terms. So for me, that's kind of when you kind of talk about beauty. Yes, of course, there's, there's traditional aesthetic beauty, but there's a beauty in ethics as well, which is also something Tanya talks about quite a lot too. I think that's amazing epilogue to moving on to comments and questions from our audience and also hopefully giving them some space and time to reflect on what we've discussed. So the floor is open if anybody wants to comment or ask a question to Alistair. Highly conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email. Hi, thank you both for the wonderful talk. My question is mostly about the post-Brexit art scenes and how the freedom of speech is possibly going to be shaped. And I think I might reframe it like, What do you think about the future of Arts Council England funded projects in the UK? I think they're going to be mostly like redistributed towards places that are outside London. And when you map those places with the map of the Brexit waters, how do you think that's going to affect the future conversations around art that includes British institutions? That's a, yeah, very good question. We've had a redistribution of Arts Council money in the UK just now, just recently. And it was clear that directives came from government and from the Tory government and clearly tied to their agenda of leveling up, as they call it, or as redistributing, and particularly into these areas, predominantly post-industrial areas that are have in recent times, in part of the Brexit conditions, been seen as the key strategic battlefields in political life and in cultural life as well. And I, th I think it's interesting because I'm not sure the way it's been told is not necessarily the reality that, in my view, a lot of those communities were manipulated by discourse and aesthetics to vote a particular way. I mean, at the time of the Brexit vote, I was working in Middlesbrough and I saw it and I saw everybody who believing what they were told, that this would be an answer. And I remember saying very clearly at the time, this will not be the answer. You will not get what you're asking for or what you think this is going to bring. And of course, it didn't. And I think this redistribution that's taking place is part of that political map. But I'm not sure necessarily that map relates to artistic practice. Because in a way, what's important is artists how you do something, not what you do. And I think the danger is just by shifting where the money goes, the money will not necessarily go to the best ways of working. It will maybe go to the right places, but it won't necessarily end up in the hands of communities, organizations, or imperatives that need it most. 
So I think in a way, what I had described as a kind of mismapping, which in the end is about how it looks. I mean, everyone talks about the optics now, which is a, it's this terrible word I can hardly use anymore because it, it's even used on comedy shows on TV. But yeah, I, I think that Britain has a problem is that it still believes a storyline that is untrue and its behaviors and its policy and decision making are based on that delusion. So yeah, and I think the, the redistribution of funds that we've seen recently from Arts Council is not by necessarily by design, but by default has become skewed by that. Thank you, Betul, for the question. I think Gemini had a question as well. I'd like to make a comment on, I, I recently found out that Stefan Wright and most of my professors are were classmates and, and their PhD thesis director is Rainer Hochlitz, which is a like French theorician, philosopher, and his PhD director was Habermas. And it's a conspiracy. <laughs> so it's, it's all about like the public space and you know all the yeah, yeah. like they were the torch and the <laughs> So, um, sorry, <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I'm having a week like that. Uh, so, but this book, um, uh, La Robonde is, I can't translate that, but it, well, it's written in French, Rainer Rochlitz, who wrote that. And I, I, like, I was reading this book when I was 20 and I remember losing my mind because it's so analytic, like anal analytic philosophy and I, I was like, I was very pleased because I studied science in uh, in high school and then started to my engineer like school. But suddenly I wanted to study artistry and philosophy. I remember well, it's because I, I didn't understand anything. I remember going to an exhibition in Eindhoven because I had so wannabe museum. So it, it's everything is connected. Uh, so. Uh, one of my friends was like studying there and I just saw these like huge installations and I was like, what are you gonna, what are you gonna do afterwards? Why this is all, there were like tents and I know some structures with televisions and I was like, what's, what all these are going afterwards? I felt of course stupid and also, oh yeah, I was, uh, a bit mesmerized as well of the fact that I don't understand anything and it was a challenge for me to understand. <laughs> and so I started also in Sorbonne studying philosophy, art philosophy. And then this was the first book I wrote. And so I, I found the passage. There are all very strange notes in it that really shows that I was losing my mind. And one of them is Art that doesn't look like art. I was so shocked that of the fact that like the author was trying to explain that the statue uh, of art, like he was trying to decompose it and in a in a methodological way. Um, like he he tries to found something that he called aesthetic rationality and like his thing that he is not. Like he's comparing authors as well, like Goodman and 
Jeanette um, Panofsky, all of that authors, and tries to have a different like look on art. And this, I, I found this passage saying that, yeah, he's saying that uh, trying to define which what is art or what is not is not um, identification, but it doesn't say anything about his public uh, status, his public uh, image. So actually, he's saying that trying to define things like how it is not like how today is not relevant, like trying to define things and. He says that it's it's just an anxious artistic identity. This envy is, is coming from the anxious identity of the artist. So, sounds like a good book to lose your mind to. <laughs> no, it's an interesting reference point. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it does point to a lot of the things I was referring to. But yeah, it's good to know the origin source of this material the lineage we yeah. uh, we go back to questions of lineage uh, now yeah <laughs> I, I, yeah I, I want i want to see the genealogical tree with the stephen wright conspiracy cabal on it yeah on graph commons yeah yeah we should definitely do one thanks gemini i mean it was nice to venture into your the corridors of your mind and But you raised some interesting points also about the afterlife of artistic production and the kind of all the artifacts that are being produced and what happens to them afterwards, if not they are circulating in the market. And also those distinctions of value there. I mean, we don't need to go into those, but there are many interesting questions that you raised. So thanks. But I think also what does art look like? It's a really, it's a really good question, right? What does it look like? And I do think that, I mean, I, I've always thought part of people not understanding what contemporary art is, is part of its methodology. There's a deliberate, I, I worked in the market for a long time and some people understanding what it is and some people not getting it is part of its economy and is deliberately constructed in that way. Yeah. So uh, I've not read that book. I should read it, obviously. I will translate it to English for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That'd be the ne- the next in the se- that could be a podcast series in its own right. <laughs> Great. So, uh, is there anybody else? Sarp had a question. You know what, Alistair? I actually know what art should exactly look like. So there's this one film of Jean Luc Godard from '68 called La Chinoise, the Chinese. So there on the wall, the students from the '68 movement has written. Il faut confronter les idées vagues avec des images claires. So it means you have to confront the vague ideas with clear images. This is just a funny anecdote, but I have a question uh, about Arte Util as well. So there's this one thing about Arte Util that's that's kind of troubling me since a while. And shout out to our colleague uh, Honor Yildiz, with whom we have long and thoroughly discussed this. So. I don't know if you know Onur. Yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. So, like, when the Arte Util archive has opened at SALT, they've given an informal uh, opening talk with Mary Chonar, the former director of SALT. So there I also asked, uh, an endeavor such as Arte Util, like, uh, or let's say the introduction of the term, the useful art, also inherently suggests a hidden negation of the unuseful art. 
Like, would you agree? Has this occurred to you as well? Like, could you maybe also speculate or comment about it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, amongst all, we kind of discuss these things a lot in Artutil. And so, for example, Tanya will never use the term useful art because for her, it's not accurate enough. She thinks there's art as a tool. Whereas I have used the term useful art because in an Anglophone context, it sits in a, in, again, in a, in a history that goes back through, again, through the 19th century and a lot of the social and socialist movements in, in industrial Britain. So there was, there was, for example, a really useful knowledge society, which is about workers gaining the knowledge to kind of subvert the system. So th- for me, there is, of course, a provocation in the discourse around artutio, useful art, usology, which is knowingly against this idea of autonomous art. And in saying, but I would say there isn't a clear divide. And it's not like I want to do away with it. I mean, I, I would always argue all art is useful to somebody somewhere. Even the most arcane, abstract, kind of monosyllabic, unforgiving art forms are used by somebody somewhere. And use is, neither is used determined by intent. Things can be used and misused. So if you look at, for example, some of the most classic icons of uselessness, i.e., for example, classic case being abstract expressionism, was clearly used by the American government in the Cold War. And art collectors, know, as I say a lot, art collectors know how to use autonomous art really well. So the way I'd rather see it is, again, and it's a bit like how I described the kind of matrix of thinking around the coefficient of art and the coefficient of artists, we could also think about a coefficient of use so that any given object or eventhood in the world is in a way given meaning by its use and who's using it at that particular time and how. So it's not that some things are useless and some things are useful. It's more that at different moments in time, these things have different uses to different people. And then for me, like with Frank's of Util, we would probably say that the things that are in the archive are determined to be in there because they have the highest coefficient of use for the widest number of people. So it's where that distribution of use lies. It's not the projects in the Artutil archive, their kind of their usership lies kind of somewhere closer to ground level than in the penthouse in on, on Park Lane. Yeah. So it's not that I want to do away with uselessness because I understand it. In fact, where that comes from is the Kantian paradigm where even Kant himself talks about the uselessness of art being its use. So the two things sit hand in hand. They're not separate. And I think we have to sort of be quite fluid in our thinking about how we think about that. But you're right, for sure. I've certainly used the idea of over time, maybe less so recently, but in the early days when everybody thought it was a completely nuts idea and I would get shouted at by art dealers at the various moments in this is that, yeah, it was it was kind of used as a provocation to sort of chip away at the system a little bit. But nowadays, it's become it's being integrated into thinking a little bit more. I say in, in recent years, but then that also worries me as well. And also, I mean, there is a certain clarity to the way art util is described. There are even like a list of qualities that an art util project should possess and things like that. So it's always in the language, but that clarity. I think is mistakenly taken as divisiveness because, I mean, again, like a very simple and maybe stupid art historical example, but nobody criticized abstract painters for, 
let's say, refusing figuration and not being inclusive to figurative painting, in a sense. So I think it draws a position, and I don't think that clarity suggests that all art should be within Arte Utila. It's more about cataloging, deploying a number of practices together out into the world. And I think it's two different things, and I don't think that they are suggesting that all art should be Arte Util, or I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. No, no, it's right. It'd be a very boring place. And in a way, it couldn't exist without non-Arte Util art. But it, it was really, I mean, at the time, it was just, I mean, the, the point was, I suppose, and I don't know, maybe Alexandra can chip in here as well, but the point at the time was to, to tell these stories that hadn't been told, to present another picture of what art could be and what it has been and how it can work in other ways than the ways we are told in mainstream education or in mainstream cultural discourse, is to say there are other ways of thinking and looking and talking about art that we shouldn't ignore. And if we are to demodernize, decolonize all the things we're, and a lot of people are endeavoring to do at the moment, then this could be a really interesting key to unlock all that. So yeah, and it's, so it's definitely not like there should be a Starbucks of art where everybody only does useful stuff. But equally at the same time, I say something is useful to somebody somewhere, otherwise they wouldn't bother. But I also kind of find it critical, like, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it was never intended as an adjective in the first place, right? Uh, art util? Yes, like the useful part. The emphasis really is on the, this idea, and Tanya talks about this, is the idea of art as a verb, which is about art as, art as doing rather than categorization or description. Yeah, that's a fair way to put it. Thank you. Thank you, Sab, for the question. I think we all have different takes on the, the whole art util thing, but I take it also as a, you know, as a project and maybe rightfully so also attributed to Tanya Bruguera as an artist, I mean, with all her collaborators, of course. So those create, again, convergences sometimes or limitations with regards to what to expect or how to look at such a work. All our discussions and the work around Util was also that we were conscious it wasn't a new idea. And was, again, as we put in the Museum of Util together, we had this correspondence from an Italian artist in the 60s called Pino Poggi, who said, hey, you stole my idea. I, did, I was doing Arte Utile in the 1960s. This is my work. And we go, no, no, it's right. I mean, you know, just, it's, not, it's not new. This is actually a really old idea, just reintroducing it. And you, you find it in the Mexican muralists. You find it in John Ruskin. You find it in Chinese calligraphy. You can find this in lots of different places. And, and it was important that we accepted that this wasn't a new invention. It was really a way of bringing people and, and different understandings of what this could be together that told a different story of art. Well, this was great. Alessandra, do you want to say something? I saw you shared something in the chat. Well, not really. I just posted into the chat exactly a link to an article that, uh, because Hema, Medina and myself, we were at SALT during the uh, office of Arteutil. And we discussed actually with uh, Onur uh, and Nats a lot about the language, right? So for them, they really needed to find a way uh, to come up with a, a definition in the in Turkish that was actually not a, a useful art. 
So I linked this uh, article because we interviewed them and uh, there is a nice uh, take on uh, the language and the choose of definition, which I think is crucial. And that's why after calling for a very long time, useful art, we decided or we decided we just go back to Arte Util because it's, uh, I think, clearer from a Spanish speaking people, but also because it really means art as a tool rather than Arte useful art. So, I mean, this question of the language is quite crucial, but a, a topic for another episode, maybe. Yeah, and, and also in that, what's quite nice about the idea of art as a tool, which makes it more flexible, is you can, you can also misuse a tool, right? There isn't one way to use a tool. Like you can use a screwdriver to stir your coffee. There's, there's, there's a sentence to end on. <laughs> <laughs> Great ending. <laughs> <laughs> the grand finale. <laughs> no, fantastic. This was great, Alistair. Thanks so much for taking the time. No, it's a pleasure. And really nice to meet you all. And thanks for the, yeah, the smart questions. Thank you. Nice to see you all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Highly Conversations are produced by Asla Altay and Sarprenk Özer with Derya Yıldız as our associate producer. This episode was engineered by Arda Karaburçak with music by Group Ses. This season of Ahali Conversations is supported by the Ground Foundation with additional support on this episode from Moon and Stars Project Grant. Now I know everybody's after your likes and subscribes and follows in this attention economy, but it would really help us reach more ears if you just simply let a friend know. Thank you and see you next time.